So we are coming to the climatic ending of the book of Ruth. And we can already see how, I hope you haven't been reading ahead, you don't know where the story is going. I know you have, and I know that you know this story. But we can already see how the Lord is bringing his purposes to bear in the life of Ruth and of Naomi by using this man called Boaz, this excellent uh, man called Boaz. We are already seeing it come to fruition. And it is a wonderful thing to look and to see, because this is not just a story that it took place uh, in, uh, or, uh, that it was invented, a fictional story. It's a story about uh, real men and women in a real place coming to terms with real difficulties in finding a real God supplying and providing for them. How did this whole come about? Just as a small recap of this story. I think there are three major events, and I'm not going to recapitulate the, the story, but most of you have heard me uh, summarizing chapter 1, 2, and 3 a couple of times already. But there are three major events that take place in the story of Ruth that are very important for us as we get to the end of this chapter. And as we think how this all, whole thing came about, are three instances where faith played a major role. The first of which we read in chapter 1. It's that commitment of faith, that decision of faith that Ruth took. When she committed herself to Naomi, entreat me not to leave you. That, that is very much a step, a decision of faith. Second uh, instance of faith that brought us up until this point is Ruth's uh, decision or Ruth's faith in practice. She not only had a profession of faith, but she practiced it. In chapter 2, we see her go out gleaning in the field. She's practicing her faith. And the third place where we see her faith being displayed, or the third instance that has brought us thus far, is on, in, on how she pursued the path suggested by Naomi, her mother-in-law. It was a, an appeal that she made out of faith, out of trust that God would supply, all in accordance with God's word. So that's where we find ourselves at the end of this chapter with just a few verses left to consider. But nonetheless, four or five verses, I didn't actually count, one, two, three, four, five verses that points us to, to the great Savior that we have. It all starts as where we left off in, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 14. You remember that Boaz had said to, to Ruth, lie down until morning. And then we get to verse 14. It is morning, and she lay at his feet, we read, until morning. And she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. You see, 
We see in this passage how the Lord brings his purposes about. Not only in the life of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, not only in this instance, uh, 1,200 years before Christ came into this world, it is very much how he acts in, in, the, in the history of his people. And this is how he does it. First of all, reputations are protected. Ruth lay at, the, at Boaz's feet at, until morning. She, she was protected. Why, why did Boaz ask this? I presume to protect her from, from uh, any kind of, of accusations, from any kind of, uh, of gossip that might be going around that, that, particular, uh, that might happen had she not done so. To protect her, to protect his reputation as well, to protect the process that was about to happen on that morning. He said to someone, I believe that this, uh, in verse 14, he's addressing another person because he's t- uh, speaking in the third person regarding Ruth and, uh, um, and he's using the passive voice. He says that, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's probably addressing one of his workers or all his workers or all that were there looking and seeing this. He gives them a command. Do not let this be known. He's commanding them that Ruth's presence would be kept a secret. Boaz does not want Ruth to be viewed as, let's, let's name it, to be viewed as a prostitute. To be viewed as someone who, who acted uh, in, a, in an unrighteous manner. And here, let me just draw a point of application, because I think it is an appropriate point to draw here that certain situations in our life, and I think I've made this point before, certain situations in our life cause us to take courses of action that otherwise, in different circumstances, we wouldn't. That otherwise, in, uh, other, in, uh, in normal circumstances, it would be, be very unwise for us to do. You understand what I'm saying? In, uh, let, me, let me try and explain that We need to have common sense as Christians living in this world. True, if all things were equal, if this was a clean sheet of a situation, what Boaz required or requested of, of Ruth would be a very unwise thing for any man to do, for, for anyone to do. Just lie down here beside me, next to me, adjacent to me the whole night. It wouldn't be a good idea to say this. It wouldn't be a, a good proposal for a good Christian man to do. But given the way that this situation has unfolded, he recognizes that the best thing for her to do is to stay put, stay there. After all, Boaz knows his motives. He he knows what is going on. And why does he want this? Because of common sense. He doesn't want Ruth to be subjected to any kind of gossiping in the, in the village, in the, in the town. There is a sense where brothers and sisters, as Christians, we need to exercise common sense, discretion, 
in certain matters. And before anyone accuses me, I'm not saying that we use common sense and, and discretion to, to do things that cl clearly the Bible has forbidden. That is not the case. No one takes it that way. This is not a license to sin, but it is a license to use discernment in certain matters. He is concerned that there will be no misunderstanding by others. He's concerned about Ruth's reputation. He probably is even concerned that, that this transaction, this uh, thing that will happen in, in the next morning with this other kinsman, redeemer, this other man who is a close relative, uh, would not be impaired or would not suffer from anything that might have happened or that might be construed or... or, or imply that have, might have happened on that day, on that night before. So it's absolutely imperative. He says that nothing gets out. I believe that this is an action that, he, that is actually commendable on the part of Boaz. Number two, in verse 15, we see that provisions are made. Verse 15, we read again, uh, or we read that, he also said, bring the shawl, bring the, the cloth, bring your veil, bring the, that, that overcoat, that mantle that you have. Again, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, this is an overcoat. This is a, a second layer of clothing that, uh, or the idea conveyed here is of a second layer of clothing, which doesn't really match up with the idea that uh, Naomi, that some commentators have that Naomi was asking uh, Ruth to dress up in a, in a sensual fashion. No, she was wearing a thick clothing. That's, that's the often, or a few times in this narrative, we are told that what Ruth was wearing was something of, of weightiness, something that was akin to, to a, a bridal garment. And that's what Boaz asks of her, use the shawl, use the outer uh, 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 part of the two garments that you're wearing, use it as a, uh, as a bag or as, a, as a, a recipient, and he measured for her. Now, if you look there, it's just a technicality, but it, it is something that is nice for us to know when we read our, our Bibles. If you look there in verse 15, it says he measured six ephahs of barley. I don't know if everyone, as they are looking there, if they notice, they should, if you're using the New King James, that ephahs is italicized in your scriptures. Is that, is that the case? If you're using the AV, it's probably, it probably says measures, but ephahs here, is italicized. Why is it, it italicized? In, tra in Bible translations, it's whenever you see a word italicized, it's a word that has been supplied by tr the translator. It's a word that was not there. It's a word that was not, is not present in the original. The translator feels like he needs to add this word in order for the sentence to make sense. Unfortunately, I must say that I think that there's a... Uh, uh, a mistake here that kind of contradicts the whole point of the book of Ruth or one of the points in the book of Ruth because the word is not there but when they put six, six ephahs if you might rem remember back in chapter 2 Ruth took one ephah and this one ephah was a, 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 an abundant supply it was just about as much as she could carry in, uh, by herself 
if if it was the case that this is six ephas here in chapter three, then we have one of those an exaggeration. But it's not the case. I believe that the AV actually does a better job in supplying the word measure. And most commentators that have dealt with this, they say that here it's not six ephas, it's just six measurements of something that probably amounted to two ephas. Two ephas, again, would be around about between 50, 80 pounds. There's a lot of discussion on, on the quantity of an ephah. But it would be an inordinate amount. And the supply, the measure, is what we're meant to focus here. Uh, the gift is indicative that Boaz was determined to do for Ruth all that he could do. All that he could uh, do. It's a, it's a, it's a sign. It's a, a, a symbolic act. Obviously, Ruth was not a frail woman that was unable to pick up and, and, and carry between 50 and 80 pounds of, of grain and carry it from the threshing floor to the city. She was probably strong, used to work, used to, to providing for herself. But nonetheless, this is a generous, abundant, above and beyond the, 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 the call of duty kind of offering. And there is something here as well. I might be reading too much into it. But I find it interesting because, you know, Jews, when they would um, read their scripture, numbers are very significant to, to in, a, in Hebrew literature. And here we find six. And my mind goes, why not seven? Why not seven measures? Why just six? Number six, you know, in, in biblical symbolism... Is, represents incompleteness. The world was created on, in six days. And, and yet he was incomplete without the seventh, the Sabbath. I believe that this is a kind of a promise that we see here. Where, where Boaz measures to her six amounts in saying it is still incomplete. But it is a promise that there is rest coming on the seventh day. Be it as it is. Take it if you want. It might be a little bit stretching, but I do believe that some of these numbers in Scripture are meant for us to pause and see the significance of the symbolism here. You might say, why does he offer grain? Well, because he's not living in the West. If he was in the West, he probably would give a, a wedding ring, something with a diamond on it to the, to the lady. But as it happens, he's in a, in a, in a barn, in a threshing floor, in the middle of, of, the, of, the, of the fields. He, that's how, the, how he made a promise. That, that's the way he symbolized his commitment by providing now in promise that he would provide later if there was a need. So Ruth obeys, she stays until morning, and then in verse 16 and 17 we see a, a report. We see again, uh, very much like in chapter 2, Ruth makes her way home. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? There is this question, this inquiry. It's the same wording, in fact, of, of verse 9, if you would glance there. When Boaz is startled in the middle of the night, who are you? 
But here, Naomi is asking of Ruth as well, who are you? But I think the question here has a, a, a slightly different twist to it. I'm sure Naomi knew it was Ruth that was coming down the road. In fact, she was waiting on her. If it's still morning before anyone can recognize one another, it's probably that she was there waiting for the report. Some translations, some commentators say that actually what, what Ruth is asking here, what Naomi is asking here of Ruth is, who are you? Are you still Ruth the Moabitess? Or are you Ruth the wife of, of Boaz? Are you now betrothed? How did it fare? Is basically what she's asking. How did it go for you? Naomi wanted to know the results. And we find the, the, the reply in verse 17. She says to her, uh, and she told her now in the, at the end of verse 16, and she told her all that man, the man had done for her. Now, I find this very interesting. And again, let me just draw a, 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 tang a tangent here uh, in application. She told her everything. This is a great rule for anyone to live by, but it is a, a rule of thumb that young people should live by in their lives. If you're a young person, if you're someone who, who goes out in the morning and, and, does, uh, and goes about her, their business and then has to come back home, uh, and you have to tell uh, what happened. If you apply the rule of, that I'm about to tell you, chances are you will be much safer than otherwise. The rule is very simple. Don't do things that you could not tell your mother or your father at the end of the day. She told everything that had happened to, to Naomi because nothing wrong had happened. Because she had not done, not done anything wrong. If you apply this rule, if you live by this rule, you will be saved by a lot of, uh, a, a lot of untold headaches. Isn't that true? We, we want to live uh, and do things, but, but we know that our parents wouldn't like to see. We know that someone uh, wouldn't like us to know about it. But if we live by the rule of being able to tell, the to tell our parents or to tell the person who, who, who lives with us what happened, we would be saved from very big headaches. And she reported to her, to her these six ephahs, again, these six uh, measures of barley he gave me. For he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, verse, verse 18, there is a counsel. She says to her, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter is this day. Here there would be another clear point of application in the way that Boaz acts. And I, I'll, I'll just be quick in, in saying it, but it's, it's important. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all your strength. Here's Boaz. He has something to do. He will not rest. He will do it. He, he will take care of business quickly and promptly. He will not defer anything. 
if it can be done today, he does it. This is a very indicting thing for me personally. I have a tendency to live things to, uh, that can be done tomorrow, live it to tomorrow. But it is a, a, a matter that we all can learn from, especially when other people's lives are dependent on our acting, like Boas's situation was. Leave not to tomorrow what you can do today, is a, a saying in, in my home country. But here's what Ruth or Naomi says to Ruth. Sit still. Rather than pursue, rather than, uh, than go after, rather than, than, than try and do something. Here Naomi says, sit still, wait. While this is a difficult way, I, I fully recognize for us to get an answer. It is so often the way that God works. We are called to wait. And there is a, a, a sort of ironic touch here. Because the time to wait is very short. As we know from the rest of, the ch of chapter 4. Nonetheless, wait. Wait until... Wait until, he, until you know how the matter will turn out. Let me just, let me just say this in passing. God has his untils. God has his untils uh, in his will. Eternity is a long time. And we will not be in eternity until things come to pass. But God ordains these untils that we find in Scripture. And we must learn to sit still until things come to pass. Not to be anxious, not to, to want to do things by our own strength, but to trust. And finally, she says, or Naomi says, until this matter is concluded, until this matter is finished, at the end of the day. And so we, we get to the end of chapter 3. Very much like in chapter 2. It's, it's a, a kind of a, a cliff edge. If you don't know the story. You're kind of. Anxious to know what's going to happen. But here's the picture. Before we get to chapter 4. Ruth is waiting. Boaz on his side. As we read in verse 1. As soon as morning came. He went up to the gate. No one was there, but he wait, went there and he's waiting there, sitting at the gate, waiting over there. And we'll wait for this to happen next week and we'll, we'll see what, uh, what happens when we get back to this story. But again, how beautiful it is. The, the story of emptiness and the story of fullness in this passage. Naomi goes back to Bethlehem after chapter 1, empty. She comes back to Bethlehem without anything, but the Lord is fulfilling all her needs through Ruth and Boaz. I, I know the book is called the Book of Ruth. And I know in many ways the Book of Ruth takes a, a kind of protagonist role in all of this. But I would suggest to you to start seeing the Book of Ruth from the, the perspective of Naomi. Because Naomi is in many ways the... the this is not a, a fictional story, but let me put it in fictional story ways. Naomi is in many ways the, the, the main character 
the, the main hinge of the story. She's now at the end of chapter 3, no longer empty. The Lord has provided food for her hunger, the, a place uh, of rest. There is a redeemer now. There is hope. We just need to wait what's going to happen with this closer next of kin in chapter 4. But all throughout this story, there is God providing for her. There is God un, uh, undertaking and, and, and in his providential hand, ordering things so that Naomi gets to the end of chapter 3 provided in full. And we'll see more of that fullness in the next chapter. But just in closing, because I want us to see something here uh, that points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you can see that in Boaz. As we looked a few months, a few weeks ago, uh, when we got to the beginning of chapter 2. When you see Boaz, you, you're kind of struck by this sentiment, aren't you? This sentiment of, I've known this person. There's something about uh, this individual, about Boaz, that kind of just reminds me of someone. Kind of like when you go on the street and you see someone, it's like, your face looks familiar. There is something in Boaz that, that elicits a, a, a sentiment of familiarity. Makes you think of somebody. And I would say that that is very natural if you're a believer because Boaz is meant to foreshadow for us our Lord Jesus. It was our Lord Jesus that was made our kinsman, redeemer, who was, as Hebrews says, one who became like us, identified with us in everything except in sin. He was sinless and we are sinful. It's, we're meant to see that the way that Boaz's, Boaz deals with Ruth is the way that Christ deals with the church, with everyone who is repentant. That as she casts herself at the feet of Boaz, so we cast ourselves at the feet of Christ. That we are, just as Ruth was dependent on Boaz, we are dependent on Christ's kindness to us, on his mercy. That as Ruth was covered by the corner of the garment of Boaz, and that represented his protection, being covered under the shadow of his wing, it's the same word, the corner of the garment and wing is exactly the same word, that we too need to be covered under the shadow of the wings of God, under the, the, the blood of the covenant of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. She being introduced to all peace and rest and contentment and security as a result of being thus united with Boaz is a picture for us of our security, of our rest, of our contentment, of all that Christ has to give us as we shelter ourselves under the shadow of Christ. She, Ruth, going down the road with this Wonderful burden, twice now, with this wonderful burden of grain, is that uh, which represents a promise of fuller, more complete 
provision, is that not a picture of what Christ has done for us, who made us to sit down in heavenly places, that we now enjoy his wonderful provision in God, the Father. That Ruth, as a poor, destitute, penniless woman, represents to us our own condition as aliens, foreigners, as a Moabitess, Moabitess in, in foreign land. Just as Boaz took Ruth and made her his bride, as we will see uh, in, in chapter 4, Christ the bridegroom takes us and makes us his bride. So you see, the fantastic thing about this story is that it's a real story. It's a real person at a real moment in their life, living in a real environment. A real story. And that is the wonder of the, of the book of Ruth. That 1,200 years later, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Just as Boaz accepted his role to be a redeemer for Ruth, Christ accepted his role to be a redeemer for us. And that is the wondrous of one, the most wonderful thing. So you see, I, and I'm not alone in seeing this. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's clear. It's not a stretch. As you look to the, to the book of Ruth and you see Boaz and you see Ruth, you're meant to see Christ and you're meant to see the church. You're meant to see Christ and you're meant to see yourself. You're meant to see Christ in Boaz. And you're meant to act like Ruth acted as in, in relationship to Boaz. To come to him. To plead for his redemption. To ask him for, for salvation. Just like Boaz paid a great price, six measures of grain, or more than Boaz, our Lord Jesus Christ gave his own blood to save us. And you might ask, why would he do that? Why would Boaz do that? He was under no obligation. He was not the person, and he had no obligation, even if he was the, the nearest uh, close relative, he was under no obligation. And he now asked, was Christ under any obligation to save us? No. He didn't owe us anything. He does not owe us anything. It is all grace. It is all love. It is all out of his mercy. You see, Jesus treats us like Boaz treats Ruth. So what should be our answer? What should be our, our way forward? Trust, faith. To follow the example of Ruth and to sit still. You see, salvation is not about doing. Salvation is about receiving. It's done. That's what salvation is. 
So my pleading with you, whether you're a believer or whether you're a non-believer, trust. Come to Christ. Plead for his forgiveness. Plead for his redemption. And sit still. Trust. Not a word of works. Not a, not a, 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 a works will come. Faith is not dead. Our faith is dead that does not, is not accompanied with works. But faith is faith, not works. So if you don't know Jesus and you need to know him, he is the God of Ruth, he is the God of Boaz, and ultimately is the Lord Jesus who is coming through this family line. In chapter 4, there's a baby born. And out of that baby, another baby. And out of that family line comes Jesus. It is Jesus who is like Boaz. And it is Jesus who asks us to come to him. To come to him like Ruth. Just simply to be redeemed. Just simply to be spread over with his garment of righteousness. And then to trust him for his work of death, burial, and resurrection to redeem him and to sit still.